I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to see the work of Tears of Eden continue, consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. You can do that by visiting tearsofeden.org support. This is one of our most loved episodes with Cody Purcell sharing her story of abuse at the hands of a pastor, but also the church system that actively sought to cover it up. I want to talk a little bit about the circumstances that often lead to a survivor going public with their story. While there is nuance to each individual story, often a survivor's only recourse and opportunity to share their version of the story is going public. It is extremely difficult to get any sort of justice for abuse. Most abusers are calculated and don't actually want to get caught. So they'll often take the abuse as close to the line as they can get, and they definitely don't leave behind easy evidence. When a survivor goes public with their story, they are taking a huge risk. They take the risk that their story won't be believed, which can be devastating after having to keep silent for years. They take the risk that any number of people will accuse them of trying to get attention, trying to hurt their abuser, or in the case of church abuse, they'll be accused of trying to hurt the church. They'll be accused of trying to get a payout, and those accusers typically are unconcerned with the reality that no amount of money will ever make up for or remove the impact of the abuse on the survivor. Also, very few survivors ever receive financial compensation of any sort. In fact, they typically suffer financially, as the abuse can make it difficult for them to keep a job. It often requires thousands of dollars for therapy, and many survivors suffer from medical difficulties that require them to pay exorbitant fees for medication and treatment. All that to say, for a survivor to go public with their story, often they have reached a point where that choice is important for their healing journey. They're taking back the pen and ensuring they have a say in the direction of their lives when the abuser has tried and often succeeded and taking away so much of that survivor's agency. So as you listen to Cody's story, remember compassion and curiosity. Remember that she speaks out in a desire to help others. I want to thank Cody for her bravery in sharing her story. Here's my conversation with Cody Purcell. I am still in my PJs. I've got my coffee. So we're having it. We're going to have a little cozy conversation here. That's perfect. I have my coffee too. I have a Tears of Eden stress ball. I do not have that. Let me grab one of my kids' stuffed animals. That can be my stress ball. I have Hello Kitty. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, whatever. I'm like, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you need them. How, how are you doing this morning? Good. I feel so many things. That's what I feel. I feel yes. like scared and excited and defiant and bold and I don't know I feel all the things yes yeah well that that is right before you share your story there's a lot of things that 
yeah. that happened. Have you ever like shared it like publicly before? No. Okay. No, the only times I have shared it has been as a, I mean, going back and forth with the denomination. Yeah. And writing out and writing out and writing it out and writing it out and in therapy. But I've never, I've never felt the freedom to express it because a part of me feels like a part of me still feels connected to my abuser. And like, I have this part of me that feels like I am betraying him. Mm. And that's really hard for me to like parse through. And then the other part of me feels like I will be blamed again or told it's my fault or mm-hmm. the, all these labels that have been put on me, thrust mm-hmm. upon me. Yeah. So it's a lot. And yeah, but then the other part of me, when I try to take a step back and I look at this from an outsider's perspective, or I think of another woman being in this position, exactly. I'm like, no, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that what happened is wrong. So yeah. it's like, I have to talk to <laughs> the younger version of myself and right. be like, no, 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 no. It's yeah, okay. it's okay. So. No, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you share because I feel like not only is the story itself something that people need to hear and I think can help people in understanding this conversation, I also feel like you're able to articulate not only what happened, but why it was problematic and then also mm-hmm. articulate your your own experience while it's happening, which I think is is not always common for it, it or, I mean, and you've done the work, so, but it takes years to get mm-hmm. to a place where you can express not just what happened, because sometimes we can do that, but then also how did that impact me and what was happening to me mm-hmm. when this was happening? I actually just had, I was interviewed sharing my story on a podcast very recently, and it was very cathartic just to be able to be like, yay, like I get to tell my story now. And so that happened. But then the night before the episode came out, I had this dream because most of it was about my family of origin. And I had this dream that my mom went and like recruited all of my siblings to try and get them to get me to take it down. Mm. And it was like, and I texted my siblings because none of them would do that. But (laughs) I was like, it was like my subconscious was still terrified, Mm -hmm. you know, like, still like, what are people, how are people going to respond to this? How is my mom going to respond to this? And, and so, yeah, there's a lot mixed up in it. So there's no, no part of me that takes that lightly. And I'm so grateful that you want to share and yeah. So I, I guess I want to, I want to help you, but I also am like, I would just love for you to just, just share the story of what happened and just that, yeah, just the, the involvement of the church in your own abuse situation. And I just, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll follow up questions as you're chatting. <laughs> so yes, there's no audience here, just us. I'm so good at word vomiting. Okay. <laughs> so I think it's important for me to start off with sharing that this has been something that I have been working on for half of my life. And I am so much further along on in my healing process. And it's been many, 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 many years in emotional labor and a lot of work through trauma to get to where I am. So I say all that because there may be people listening to the story and they're still scared Mm -hmm. or the comparison game is such a 
horrible game to play. So wherever you're at in your journey, just love yourself and take your time and be gentle with yourself. So my story starts when I was really, really young. So I'm going to first lay the groundwork for my life and then I will enter into the church scene. So I grew up with a lot of childhood trauma. There was a lot of abuse. There were, there was substance abuse in my family of origin and there's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, all the abuse. And that's important. That's an important indicator because what that teaches a child is that their body's not their own and that they don't have say or control over what happens to them. And because children think of things in a self-centric way then it's easy for me to take the blame on myself. So if my dad is beating me, it's probably because of me. If my mom is choosing narcotics over me, it's because of me. And so it speaks into a child's self-worth and how they view the world, how they view themselves, all that. So that was the groundwork of my life. I entered into the church scene when I was probably like five or six. I lived with my grandparents for a season and I remember seeing a picture of Jesus with kids. And I remember thinking, I bet he would like me. And so I did the classic, probably five or six year old, you know, prayer of salvation, probably like 20 times just to make sure I didn't go to hell. And which is a whole other subject to talk about when it comes to (laughs) abuse and using fear tactics against children and paternal conscious torment and all that. But that's for another story. So My grandma actually passed away a few months after that and my parents came back. So I was back with my parents and we moved to Texas. And when we went to, got to Texas, my aunt started going to this church. And so we started going to this church and it was a Wesleyan church in Austin, Texas. And I was 10. And the first time I went, like at the altar call, you best believe I stood up just to make sure I was yes, saved. Cover so, this. Let's make sure. Yes. Covered. And I remember like, I think before the pastor was even done with his like altar call spiel, I just stood up and he was like, you know, had some lady come and pray with me. And my little sister stood up too, because she wanted to be like me. So we like went to the altar and this lady's like talking us through and like, you know, about your sinners. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I got it. I got okay. it. I just need to, I need to say the prayer move on, move forward from that. So yeah, so I was about 10. My dad and my mom, my older sister and my younger sister, we started attending this church, but the abuse with my dad didn't stop. So it got got a little bit better for a period of time. And then everything went downhill and he got way, way more violent. And he, my older sister was taken by the state, my, and then my dad left my life right before I turned 13. And, and my mom dove into her narcotics addiction. So it was a real shit show. Yeah. A very vulnerable time. Yeah. So super, super vulnerable. And so I was 12, going to be 13. And my sister, a little sister was 11 and we went to youth camp for the first time. And I loved youth camp. My, in, in my youth group, there was a lot of kids that came from broken homes and usually on the more impoverished side, like we had as, you know, my mom was on disability. So we were really poor and a lot of the kids in the youth group were, and so church was our family. And that is an important detail because when you come from a broken family system and then you enter into this church and then there, now your family system, it speaks to 
your loyalty to them and Absolutely. all of that. And you're so like, you need that. There's that yeah. hole, like ready to be filled in that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I question something, then I'm going to lose the only thing, the only thing I have, like, mm -hmm. So that's something to hold on to, to remember for like later on in the story. So I am 13 at this point going to youth camp for my, the first time with my sister, little sister. And during one of the, you know, emotional worship nights, which like every night of worship is like this huge emotional thing. My youth pastor took my little sister and I aside and told us that God told him that he wanted him to be our covering. So God told Dominic that, you know, I want you to be these girls covering and I want you to be a father to them. I've got a lot of alarm bells going off, even though I know how the story ends. I feel like that would cause alarm bells anyway. Yeah. Well, not, for not me, spoiling the story, but no, yeah. That so just, for me, my whole though, body just kind of like yeah. oh, reacted. Yeah. Well, and God for, told for, him that. Yes. He God told him that he wanted him to be our covering, our father. And for me, I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. I, because I was chosen mm -hmm. and my dad left and I hear a man wanted me and wanted me, wanted to be my father. Like, yes, mm -hmm. especially because the emphasis throughout youth group is about how good of a father God is. And, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of emphasis on your woundedness and coming to God for healing and all of this stuff. So Which I was also thrilled, like, so great. It sounds yeah, so great. It does. We'd never I was, know. We'd never yeah, know. <laughs> exactly. I was special to God because he wanted Dominic to be my dad. And I was special to Dominic because now I get to be his daughter. Mm -hmm. And I was super thrilled. And the thing with Dominic is, and this speaks to the grooming, but it also speaks to the culture because the whole culture of my church was set up as a grooming culture, mm -hmm. whether it was intentional or not. And I think a lot of times when people look at the harm of systems or um, institutions, they want to say, well, that wasn't the intent, but the intent doesn't matter doesn't like the, like the damage still happened exactly the damage still happens if you hit someone with your car and you don't mean to do it guess what they're still dead on the street yeah like your intent doesn't matter sure it matters when it comes to the prosecution side or whatever but like to that victim and to their family it doesn't matter because mm -hmm. what the damage is done like you said mm -hmm. so so whatever the intent of the people at this church were or not putting that aside, it, there was this culture of grooming. So Dominic was very, very hands-on with the girls. So he would typically, you know, he would hold hands with girls, kiss them on the cheek, take them to lunch one-on-one, -on -one, like all these things. And, and no red flags were going off for people. It was just part of this like normal thing of like, yep, Dominic is just a very affectionate person. Mm -hmm. And he will, yep. A girl will sit in his lap and it's like not a big deal. He'll kiss. Yeah. Kiss a girl on the face or forehead or whatever, holding hands, all this stuff. But that wasn't the same way that boys were treated mm. at all ever. And so you knew that girls were special and out of the girls, I was very special. I have friends who have told me even since then, like they were so jealous of, of me because I had Dominic's attention. 
Mm. And they did not. And I was just special to him. Was Uh, there something about Dominic that made people like want his attention that you can remember? I think part of it was that he was youth pastor and he was cool and funny and got it. People wanted to be on the in with him. And because so many of the kids from my youth group came from broken homes, it was like the, like he was this adult that they could give them attention and Mm. love and affection. And Mm -hmm. when a lot of us didn't have that, like he could be a safe person for us. Authority figure, adult figure. Yeah. Yeah. He could be our safe person because no one else was. And yeah, it was this very weird twisted thing. Mm. So what was I saying? The girls were jealous of you. Oh yeah. Because Because I was special and, and I didn't really see that. Like I knew, like I called Dominic dad. I, I loved that. He loved me. I loved that. He would call me his girl and he would write me notes and I was his girl. And that was really, really beautiful to me during that time. Cause I didn't, I wasn't anyone's girl. My mom was mm-hmm. addicted. My dad was gone. I wasn't anyone's girl. So that was really important to me. And going back to that culture in that, in my church, if girls were seen like giving Dominic, like full chest hugs, cause you know, the awkward side hug or whatever that was for like our brothers in Christ, but Dominic would like give girls the big, huge bear hugs and everything, which a lot of them were starving for any affection or anything at all. So like we didn't think anything of it. And if the adults saw that rather than calling Dominic out and saying, Hey, that's not something you should be doing. The girls were pulled aside of, Hey, you can, you should not, you should not be hugging men this way. And so immediately, I I remember that happening to me too on. Yeah. All the time. Old men would hug me. And then I would be told don't hug them that way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and that internalizing shame happens mm-hmm. so quickly and happens all the time of like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I shouldn't, I should know better rather than thinking this is a grown ass man. Why yeah. aren't people talking to him? And why like, does he decide that he can cross these boundaries when it's not okay for someone else to, yeah. like, why does he get that pass? Well, let's talk about that. So in like, let's talk about purity culture. <laughs> so purity culture enters, which I'm sure scene. was so, so twisted for you having experienced oh. so many things. Oh, absolutely. So Dominic was a huge, huge purity culture guy. Okay. So, so he taught that you should like, like in our youth group, you could not be in the youth leadership at all. If you were dating someone, you should not be dating. Dating was to basically like an interview for marriage. Your sexuality, your sexuality belonged to your future husband. Modest was hottest. So Mm -hmm. like, which is, which is the same thing as like, it's just objectification. It's just a different type of objectification. So in the, in the world, it's like, you know, show your tits and men will love you. And then in purity culture, it's dress this way and men will love you. The message is the same. Get men to love you, be whatever men want. Mm -hmm. And in the confines of Christianity, it is a prude, be a prude and men will want you, but not too much of a prude because you have to be pretty firecracker in the bed. Yeah, exactly. Like all of these things. And so 
sex was just uh, don't do it. Don't kiss, don't hold hands, don't do anything, which wasn't a problem for me because of my upbringing with my dad. I was like terrified of men and boys mm-hmm. and being hurt. And purity culture was great for me because here was this thing where it was like, follow these rules and be good. And I have lived so much of my life up to that point, feeling bad. Mm -hmm. feeling bad about who I was and feeling worthless and feeling unworthy of love and unworthy of affection and intention. And so here was the thing I could check all these boxes and I could be good. Mm -hmm. So sure. I won't hold hands. I won't date. I won't hug. I won't like whatever, all these things, but there's that insidious undertone of your body's not your own. Like your body is your future husband's and your dad is your covering. And if you don't have a dad, who's your covering then all men are your covering and they have say over your body and mm-hmm. just your autonomy is gone. It is gone. And for me, my autonomy was gone before I even was aware of autonomy because of the abuse I had faced. So mm-hmm. it was easy for me to slide in and be like, oh, this is good. Okay. Protecting me because exactly. that's how it's framed. It's framed as protection. Yeah. And I'm as- so valuable and I'm so special that I have all of these people protecting me and I'm so fragile. I have all these men protecting me and from all the other men out there and Mm. all this stuff, which is just like awful because it would be so much better. And I'm teaching my kids like their bodies are their own Mm -hmm. and they have a say and they can tell people no Mm -hmm. with anything. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. So we like in youth group, Dominic, actually, he went to youth camps to preach this message of purity culture, of purity and what it means. And I remember him showing this. So he had this like canned sermon that he would just give about purity culture and the worth of women and the value of women and all this stuff. And this makes me uh, so knowing how the story ends, not spoilers, but it makes me so angry. Like I'm like mm-hmm. enraged <laughs> like that this mm-hmm. is, and it's like, it's like a tactic for him that he's doing Absolutely. total Absolutely. tactic. Absolutely. Uh, and so let's talk about like the trauma of like that, some of that stuff. So like people who dated in my youth group had to keep it a secret. There are so many stories of people who did start to date, but it was this like hush, hush, keep it a secret thing. Because if Dominic knew he would call a meeting with the parents and sit people down and all this. And my little sister actually is is one of these people. So she was dating her now husband and they were found out for dating or someone saw them kiss or something. And so Dominic sat down and had a meeting with Eric's parents and, Do- and Dominic himself, because he was, ca- he was Cassidy's dad because God put him in authority over her. My little uh-huh. sister, Cassidy. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And they had this meeting and my sister has faced so much trauma. Like, I don't even think that she has actually like been able to work through it and address that or call it for what, what it is. But mm-hmm. like this, which, which that whole instant shows this weird, weird thing because like, no, Dominic isn't her parent. Mm-hmm. And if my mom says it's okay for them to date, she then should it, to date. <laughs> why is this a, why is this a weird thing? But there's this like ownership over, like he's a better dad. Yeah, well, exactly. And there was this ownership over me and my, and my sister. Uh, minimizing of her role because she was a woman too. Do you think my mom? Yeah. Because she was a woman that somehow her covering didn't Yeah, well, men were supposed to be the covering, not women. Women were the ones that were protected. So my mom was this like, and my mom at that point, like throughout a lot of my adolescence, my mom was addicted to narcotics and then she got sober and then she became 
she became really anorexic and was fighting that. So there was just all these different areas. And so for my mom, she felt like she was less than, less than, less than, less than like all all the time. And there was, there was totally a double standard for men and women in my church Mm -hmm. um, and in that culture. So men had a say and women didn't have a say Mm -hmm. they were supposed to, men are the protectors and women are the followers. Like we're Mm -hmm. the ones that need the protecting. So that was the groundwork for a lot of my teenage years. So when I was 15, my mom's addiction got really, really bad and continued to get bad. And Dominic was the person I would call to, you know, say, Hey, my mom isn't home. Can you help me find her? And he'd come over and we'd drive and we'd find my mom on the floor of a grocery store or shoplifting somewhere and have to get her in the car Mm -hmm. and get her home and get her to bed and all this stuff. So like there was a, it got, it was really, really bad. And so Around that time, there was this older couple at the church, Tim and Susie Brown, who saw the way Cassidy, my little sister and I were hugging a man or a boy in the youth group or something. And they asked us if we would be interested in like meeting with them. And and these people, I was like so freaked out because like Tim was this elder. He's a military retiree. Like mm-hmm. I just remember going into this meeting thinking, if they ask you a question, just say Jesus, because it will be right. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. Is and there. yeah, I was shaking in my boots, but also I was felt so special because they were this like spiritual couple and they mm-hmm. chose me and my sister to talk with. So I had no idea what we we're talking about. So we go over to their house and they basically talk to us about how the way that they saw us hugging mm-hmm. men and hugging boys. And the boys weren't there. The boys weren't there. The boys didn't get talked to. The men didn't get talked to, but we got talked to. And and they it's so, felt- it's so fucked up because it's like the men are the protectors, but then when something goes wrong, who gets the blame? Oh the women. Girl. Oh girl. <laughs> it's it's so yeah. obvious, yet when you're in it, it's you it's just your fault. Like you just oh, yeah. take it and internalize it. And it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it was just like almost like patronizing, like, like we know that like, you don't have a dad, so you don't know these things, like all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so they started wanting to meet with us weekly and things, like I said, were really hard with my like dark getting going real downhill, real steep with my mom. So my mom eventually like they encouraged her to go away for treatment for a long period of time. So she did. And we moved in, my little sister and I moved in with Dominic and his family. So Dominic is married and he had, at that point, he had four kids. Biological children. Yep. Four biological children. So. And how old my, were, was the oldest? 13. And you when were we moved in. 16? I was 15. 16. 16. Okay. 16 when we moved in. I think I was 16. And my little sister would, would have been 14 then or 15, uh, depending on the time of year, which I don't remember because things were so shitty and so hard. Right. And I was struggling so much with depression and anxiety, but that went undiagnosed for years. And the whole, mm-hmm. and that we can talk about that too, because the whole fix it in the churches will pray more, will have more faith. Well, what is wrong with right. you? And mm-hmm. I already felt like everything was wrong with me. So we move in to Dominic's house with his family. And I remember again, feeling chosen. And for me, it was like, I have a new family. Mm-hmm. Dominic is my dad. 
Kim is my mom. The children are my brother and sisters. This is my family. This older couple, Tim and Susie Brown, they are my grandparents. Okay, let's do this. Like I have a family. I finally have a family and they want me and I'm special. And meanwhile, my mom is gone. And my aunt who lives in town is on a missions trip in Peru, like a long-term missions trip. So she's gone, but I'm fine because I have I have my, my family. And it was, it was very hard for me to process it. Like looking back now, I know like, well, no, they weren't my family. They, you know, they got to act in that capacity during that season. But for me, it was like, no, this is, I'm starting over. This is my family. Yeah. And, and I was so grateful and so thankful for so many of that, but also because I was removed from the constant survival cycle with my mom mm-hmm. and placed in a home where I felt safe, that is when a lot of the depression really surfaced and a lot of the trauma really surfaced. Because when you're in survival mode, you're surviving. Yeah. Your brain and your nervous system cannot process. Mm-hmm. When you're finally in a place where you feel safe is when it's like Pandora's box opens. And I think that that's important too, because a lot of times this isn't everyone's story, but a lot of times people will leave these abusive environments and then it feels like it gets worse afterwards. Absolutely. Yes. But it's really, it's just your body is finally able to start processing what happened and you're not in that survival mode anymore. So many people experience that. So I think that's an important detail. Yeah. Well, and up to that point, my whole life was about surviving, Mm -hmm. like my childhood was so traumatic and so like, there are so many years of my life that I just don't remember because my brain has been like, nope, that's too much for you to process. And I'm grateful for that. But also there are just huge spots in my, in my childhood. And so it was that way until my dad left. And then my mom started her addiction to narcotics and that introduced a whole slew of crap in my life. And so up to this point, it was just 16 years of surviving. And now I'm safe. And now is when my body starts to come down and let's process this. And I got so, so depressed Mm -hmm. and struggled so much with anxiety. And the Christian prescription for that is to pray more, to talk to God more, to have better faith. And I remember Kim and Dominic sitting down with me and being like, how long, how long are you going to be like this? How long are you going to, how long are you going (laughs) to allow this? to Just take over your together. life. No, really, like really. And I also know that they, I think, I mean, I'm sure they had good intentions, but they were not equipped. Right. They were not equipped. And for people who need to hear this, your pastor is not a therapist. Right. Your pastor is not a mental health professional. Right. So do not go to them for those things. Can you go to them for like, hey, what does scripture say about this? Sure, maybe, but also be aware that a lot of those interpretations are done by white men. But yes, again, that's a whole different subject. But you do not go to a pastor right. to to just like discuss mental health things. They mental are not health. equipped. Nope, not equipped out of their scope. So, and if they claim to be and don't point you towards mental health and don't, that's a huge red flag. <laughs> run away! Yes. Run away! Yes, run away! Yes. So they were not equipped to deal with any of that. And it was, they made it way worse and introduced so much more shame. Cause when you're depressed, you already feel like, 
what is wrong with me? And then anxiety comes in and, and they came in and said, well, you need to pray more and you need to read more scripture and you need all these things. And what's wrong with you? And how long, Cody, are you going to be like this? And I was just drowning. And during that time, Timothy Brown, who became my like grandparents during this, they started to pay for therapy, which was, which was great. And Dominic started actually going to the same therapist, which looking back, I'm like, that's weird. That is- that's weird. Okay. That's were they That's like a- licensed therapists or were they like biblical counselors? This was a licensed therapist, but it was in a practice that was very conservative Christian Got it. practice. And it was, it was good. Like, like it was good for me to have someone sit there and be like, oh my goodness, Cody, like you've been through so much. And me would be like, oh, I guess I have. Yeah. Cause yeah. I had never had anyone like validate that for me, mm-hmm. but looking back, there are also lots of red flags with my therapist. Like my therapist would talk to Tim Brown about our sessions and he would have input very and Dominic would too. And just this very weird, like mm-hmm. ingrown. Yeah. Weird thing. Okay. And you're 16, so, so yeah, you're still a minor. 16, but, 16 but 17, 11 year old, you know, like yeah. Well, yeah. and another thing is that for people who have been through so much trauma in so many ways, like I was a parentified child. I was my mom's mom, Yeah, but I was also emotionally stunted. So then when I enter into Dominic's family system at 16, 17, I, in some ways I am presenting to be a lot more mature. Mm-hmm. And in other ways I am a child. Because I, I don't know what to do in normal situations. I don't know what is appropriate or inappropriate for physical touch because the physical touch I have had in my life is either nothing or abuse. Yeah. So I didn't know what was good, what was bad. And I didn't know how to trust my body because of abuse, but also because we're taught in Christian circles that our hearts, yeah, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Yeah. And to the pure, all things are pure and our bodies are bad. And in purity culture, you know, women are the root of sin and our bodies are the root of sin. And we're responsible for what other men do. And if they objectify us, it's probably because we shouldn't have been showing our shoulders or our mm-hmm. knees and all this stuff. And one of Dominic's like tropes every, every year at youth camp, he would give the modesty talk to the girls, of course, because Oof. it's all about that. And he would say, if you don't want it touched, don't show it. That is so messed up. So disgusting. And it speaks so so much to the fact that consent isn't a part of that. So if someone touches you because you exist, somehow you're inviting it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, and I took great pride in being modest. I didn't, mm-hmm. I always wear a one piece, usually a one piece with boys basketball shorts. Mm-hmm. Like I looked down my nose at girls who were immodest and thought like, they just don't value themselves and they're making their brothers stumble and did it, did it. Like I was the poster child for purity culture. Oh, I hate it. So but I'm sure just coming from the trauma perspective, you finally had some control, like you had, Mm -hmm. you could make choices and like, Ooh, I can my body and prevent X, Y, Z from happening. Boom. Done. Yes. Yes. But it still didn't happen. That didn't work because the thing is, it's like, (laughs) it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work because the thing is, is that when you rob a woman of her autonomy, 
whatever men want to do goes. And when you teach things like, if you show it, I can touch it and consent's not part of that, then it's your fault anyway. Yeah. For merely existing. No matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No matter what. So Mm -hmm. I'm 16, 17. At this point, I'm probably 17 living with Dominic and he's my dad and he drops us off at school and gives the, you know, kiss on the cheek or whatever. But soon that became a kiss on the lips. And I remember thinking, huh, that's weird. But I guess he kisses his, you know, 10 year old on the lips and I'm his daughter too. So, okay. And these red flags started going up in my head, but it was, it's easier to say, oh, I'm being weird than it is to say someone I have finally let into my heart and into my life and into the spaces in my body has violated me. Absolutely. It's easier to just say, oh no, he doesn't mean anything by that. And I remember at this point, like, like looking at other adult, like adult or more grown daughters and their relationships with their dads and being like, what did they do? Or, hmm, I don't, like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't process that. Right. And, and again, the two options were he's doing something wrong to me and my body, or it's just innocent. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to think, well, he just loves me and I'm just special and it's fine. And that like, so things started to get more and more intense as like the time went by. And I lived in it with them until I started college there, I kept, I mean, I was still going downhill with depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. things were really, really dark and really, really challenging. There's a lot of, during that time period that I don't remember simply because things were so hard for me with my emotional health, but dominant got more and more physical, like looking back on things. Like, I'm like, that's weird. Like, why did he suck on my lip like that? That's weird. Why was he kissing my neck or my ear? Or why did he lay in bed with me and spoon me? Or like all of these yeah. things. And at like in every morning before I went to drive myself to college, because I was a commuter, he would wake up in the morning with me and he'd walk in me, walk into my car and kiss me every morning. And I would, I mean, and for me, I felt like, yeah, this is, I mean, I guess this is normal and this is fine. And and it became a indicator of like how special I was like, sure, this is great and fine. And the neighbor across the street, she got pictures of him doing this. And she, she talked to her friend who was like the church gossip about what had happened. And so the gossip started talking about it. And I think people dismissed it because she's the gossip and Dominic would never, he would never, he's just really affectionate. He would never. And, and then Tim Brown heard and Tim was an elder and Tim was like Dominic's dad in a lot of ways. So Tim heard this and went and talked to Dominic and just basically said, don't, don't let this happen again. Yeah. And all the while in the background, and this is again, parts of the story that I don't know. In the background, Dominic was, I think, while looking at pornography, and I think there were strip clubs involved, maybe alcohol. I don't remember. There was all this stuff that was like sexual sin that just like blew up. Okay. Uh-huh. And so Dominic started like going to therapy for that. And he was, he was put on discipline, like in the Wesleyan denomination. And you're still this, living with him? I'm still living happened? with him. And when this yeah. happens. Whoa. So he's put on discipline. 
and nobody thinks hey maybe they shouldn't be here yeah yeah i i'm pretty sure that's the timeline again it's like murky but i mean we were living with him while he was doing those things and then so whether or not he was i think i think he was put on discipline when all that happened and tim had dealt with him and me and i remember things just all of a sudden changed so I had this anxious attachment to Dominic and then all of a sudden it was like, he's put on discipline and he's, and because Tim had talked to him, like, it's like, well, you can't be alone with Cody. You can't do all these, which is great. Like looking back, I'm like, that's great. But for someone with my background, again, you freaking lay people or ministers are not mental health professionals because for me, it's like all of a sudden I'm free falling. This one person that I have this attachment to now is pulling so far back. Ooh. And it was so and it felt like abandonment. It felt like abandonment. Yes. Thank you for putting that into words. And I was wondering what, what did I do? Mm-hmm. What did I do? Yeah. I don't, you didn't I don't... see it as dangerous. You felt it as affection. Yeah. What did I do? Like what happened? And, and it was so hard for me. And I spiraled even further into depression at that point. So I took a bunch of pills and my little sister came in the room afterwards and she hugged me and she had, she had been pulling away. I think the depression really scared her. So she had been distancing herself from me and she hadn't hugged me in forever. And when she hugged me, I remember thinking like, I'm, I'm leaving her. Like Mm. we're all we have, I'm leaving her. And so I think I told Kim and I made myself puke my guts out and I went to the ER and did the whole thing in the ER and the nurses and the doctors recommended, you know, like hospitalization for her because she just attempted suicide. But Kim and Dominic said, no, we'll keep an eye on her. And they took me home and Dominic said, don't ever do that in my house again. Oh my God. And I remember just being like, I'm so selfish and I can't believe that. And like, I'm so messed up. It was just awful. And so I think a couple months later, I moved out. I actually got kicked out because Dominic and Kim said like, you can't go out without telling us. And at this point I'm like 20 years old. And I'm also like, but I'm an, I'm an adult. And there was this like delayed rebellion, I think for me. Yeah. And I'm like, and again, like, I'm not going to do any, I'm terrified of men, like all this stuff, but I went out without telling them where I was. And I met up with some friends from school and they were like, well, you're rebelling and we have to set this boundary. And so you have to leave the house. And I also think a part of it was Kim wanting me out of the house because of what, how Dominic was treating me. I think it like threatened Threatened her, uh, and, and and so I was kicked they out. They kicked you out after car. one infraction. One infraction, basically. I think it was a few. I think I had like, and they just kept saying like, "You're just being so rebellious." And in my head, I was like, "I'm fucking twenty years old. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want to go to a coffee at ten p.m. and work on school stuff, like, why can't I? Like, I don't mm-hmm. understand." But there was also a lot of the just stunted. Uh, adolescent part of me too. Like I'm trying to grapple with these two things warring inside of me. So I move out and I drive my car full of all my crap to a hotel. And my plan is like, I'm just done with this. And I just, I laid in bed for like three days and wanted to die. And then one of my, my best friends, they are twins. They were like, come live with us. And so I did. So I moved in with them for a couple months And while this is all happening, I applied to be part of this, this residential treatment program. And I got in in April 
And it's for women who have been through a lot of trauma and are trying to heal from it. And it's Christian based, which there were some great things from it. And some things looking back, I'm like, Ooh, no, that was not, that was not a good thing. And while I was there, I wrote Kim a letter asking for her forgiveness for being inappropriate with her husband. Whoa. And which breaks my heart. Like, I, I felt like it was so much of my responsibility and I was dirty and tainted and I was this whore and I can't believe I did that. And I was just so broken and now I need to, to get help. Meanwhile, Dominic is on discipline for the pornography and the strip clubs and whatever else (laughs) he was doing. Okay. Kim is having so, some some issues too. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So I get out of this program and at this point I'm 21 and my mom is back in Austin and she's clean and there are still all these rumors flying around about like Cody and Dominic and what was happening here. Mm. And I sit down with my mom is just like, what happened? Tell me what happened. And I sit down with my mom, my aunt Kayleen. Tim Brown, Tim and Susie Brown. And I tell them, I'm only going to say this one time and I'm never talking about it again. Mm -hmm. And I shared what happened. I shared, but not in a way where it was like, well, Dominic did this, but this like, this is what happened. Just, this is what happened to Mm me. And this Mm -hmm. is what, you know, Dominic, he kissed me on these days and he got in bed with me and like just all this different stuff. And my mom was absolutely heartbroken mm-hmm. and tim said we dealt with it it was a family issue we dealt with it and my mom said i'm her family yeah i'm her family you didn't you didn't tell me and the reason they didn't tell her was because she was a failure of a parent basically like there was uh-huh. this sh- so much shame yeah put on my mom of like well you weren't here and all this stuff my mom was like yes because you guys told me to go away to get sober and I entrusted my daughter and right. but somehow that was that was her failure so like if something happened it was on her basically and Tim Brown said and this is something that is burned into my brain he said Cody was too affectionate and Dominic was young and immature. Oh my God. Dominic was 38 years old at the time. Yeah. I was too affectionate and Dominic was young and immature. And at that point, my aunt said, it does not matter if Cody was standing in front of Dominic naked, asking him to have sex with her. She was the child. I remember being like, Oh, go auntie. Okay. Go, yeah. go, auntie. So Tim was real fired up about it and all this stuff and um, was like, well, we need to deal with this. So the next day, the next day, after me telling my story for the first time, the next day had me sit down with Kim and Dominic and oh himself my gosh. and tell my story. And I was shaking and I was crying and I was like trying to tell the story in a way where it's like, but I'm not mad at you, but it's my fault because I, you know, all this stuff. And Dominic was so mad. Like I could tell by the way he he like set his teeth of like, and the the way like the muscles in his jaw were flexing, he was so mad. And he said, well, I don't remember any of that, but I'm sorry. Oh my God. Classic. And I remember them Classic. leaving and they were both, Kim and Dominic were both so mad and Kim. And I was like, I'm not accusing Dominic. And Kim was like, yes, you are that you are accusing him. And I remember them leaving. And I remember 
asking if they would hug me. Like I so desperately wanted them to love me and like me and accept Mm. me. And I didn't want to cause any rift because like they were the people that I thought I had, you know, secure attachments to, I was trying to have secure attachments with. And it was just, it was just awful, awful, Mm. awful. Like I have like feelings in my body, just thinking about that. And I, I'm going to sit and eat a minute. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (sighs) Hold your stuffed animal. I know. Gonna squeeze my stress ball. I'm so angry. <laughs> I'm so angry. I'm so sad. I'm so so sad for for all those little Cody's that were violated and and invalidated and blamed. Whew. Okay, so after that meeting, I took on even more shame, thinking I am a whore and I am bad and I am wrong. And now, you know, and, and Dominic is is this good man and everyone loves him. And I am a family wrecker. I'm a ruiner. And so then I go to college, I go back to school. So I went to the residential program for, you know, eight ish months and then went into college in January of a year. That doesn't matter. I guess it's like Mm -hmm. 2010, I think, or something. And I'm in college. It's a Wesleyan college all of this is within the Western denomination. And I'm trying to just go to college and grow. And all the while, there's still so much trauma that mm-hmm. I need to work through that I haven't yet. And my mom's health is still up in the air, all this stuff. And my aunt Kayleen and my mom are like, you need to fight this. And like, this isn't okay. And there, and there's this huge division in my church of people who know something about what happened and people who are just choosing willful blindness at this Mm -hmm. point. So after meeting with Dominic and Kim feeling like it is my fault, I'm horrible. That was so traumatizing having to sit Mm -hmm. and face him and say those things. And then be told people who are listening, don't know this exposing the abused to the abuser in this capacity is so messed up. This is not conflict or conflict mm-hmm. resolution. This mm-hmm. is a case of abuse and you're mm-hmm. exposing a victim to their abuser again. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was for you to resolve what you had done basically yes. or, or slash confront this person. This is not yes. conflict. There's a power yes. dynamic and it yes. is abuse. So yes, in case people are not aware. Yes. So now, yeah. So enter complex PTSD basically. Yes. And every time I've had to speak about the story and been blamed or dismissed, it's another level of, of mm-hmm. complex PTSD. And so in that way, this entire institution is culpable. It's mm-hmm. not just about, that's the thing about my story is it's not just about one abuser Absolutely. and what happened. It's about an entire system that was set up that elevated the predator and dismissed the victim. And it is awful and so pervasive and has completely altered so much of my life. Mm -hmm. And even just saying that there's this like Christian messaging of like, well, you're not a victim if you don't have to be, but that is so wrong because if we are not able to say this was the victim and this is the predator, then sure it does become a gray area. And this story, I was victimized. Does it have to be my identity? No, it's not about my identity. It's about the facts of there was a predator and there was a victim. Let's not confuse the two. 
Right. So I, so I sit down, I mean, so after sitting down with them and the trauma and all that stuff, I go to college. Okay. And so I reach out to the district superintendent, his name's Dwight. And I'm like, Hey, can I talk to you? And, and this so is of the he, denomination of the denomination. Yeah. Got it. And so I met with Dwight and I told him my story and he said, yes, but Dominic was already put on discipline for these things. And I said, I'm just now telling you my story. He wasn't so, on discipline. For so no, he yeah. was, he was put on discipline for strip club and pornography and whatever else he was doing, but I'm just not telling you my story. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, you know, this is something that I was said a thousand times to me. Well, it's kind of a gray area, kind of a gray area, kind of a gray area. And, and nothing really came from that. And so that summer I heard that Dominic was getting a church plant and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? And I began to wonder like, did Dwight really hear me? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. I later learned that Dominic at this point was like, it was in therapy paid for by the denomination. And was while he still he getting was, a paycheck? Yes, he was. <sighs> he was still getting a paycheck. So I, t- so I felt like Dominic had shot me in the head and the Wesleyan denomination called an ambulance that came and picked up Dominic and took him off to get him help and left me bleeding out. Mm-hmm. So now the following summer, I got a call from my mom. This is like 2013 saying that Dominic was getting a church plant. And I'm like, Dwight, what the hell? Like exactly. I had talked to you. Like what is You listened to me. You said it was wrong. Yes. And I just felt like swept underneath the rug. And I was so, so sad. So Kayleen went to Dwight and said, well, Cody is really upset about this and she's really not doing well again. And so Dwight called me and a meeting was scheduled with Dwight, with Dominic and myself. No. Yes. So my mom was not welcome in that meeting. Other family were not welcomed in that meeting. And so two men in power, one person who had been abused. Yes. And the thing was, is I wanted to be good. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be this woman of grace that we put on a pedestal in church. And what that really is, the woman of grace is a woman who will not stand up for herself and who is silent and meek mm-hmm. and suffers well. That mm-hmm. is the woman of grace that mm-hmm. so many people talk about. And I wanted to be that. I wanted to be good and I wanted to be loved and I wanted to be accepted. And I was afraid of hurting him. I was afraid of hurting Dominic and I was afraid of being rejected by him. And so I sat down with them. And in that meeting, I felt like it was my role to speak life into Dominic. And I told him, Dominic, what you did doesn't define you and you're not a monster. And I don't remember. And we all ended up crying. And I remember leaving that meeting feeling like, wow, I am so gracious. And I am, I am so gracious and in feeling really proud because Dominic liked me again. And there wasn't this tension that I felt. It felt like it was the beginning of healing and restoration. Wow. A couple months later, Dominic got a church plant Mm. and I was like, what? 
like I felt like Dwight wanted to let's sit down and have this meeting just simply to check a box of okay well they had a reconciliation they're okay it was reconciling all this stuff yeah and going back to what you said like I should have never have had to sit in the same room with Dominic again exactly and this goes back to talking about how pastors are not mental health professionals Mm -hmm. because any person who has read a fucking article on mental health or, or PTSD or abuse would know this is, should not happen. Exactly. And that tells me that they failed to recognize abuse for what it was, but mm-hmm. that does not alleviate them of the responsibility Absolutely. because if they're going to have people in authority, then they need to be aware of the power dynamic. And Dominic had all the power and I had mm-hmm. none. And that is an important thing to hang on for later because it gets real shitty. People hang on to your pants. Yeah, okay. So get freaking ready. So at this point, I'm like, I cannot fathom why Dominic has a church plant. Like I talked to Dwight and then I heard Dominic was getting a church plant. And then I talked to Dwight and Dominic and now he's, he has a church plant like a month, a month or two later. Like I'm not a hiccup in anything. Like Mm. me sharing my story doesn't cause a blip in anything. Okay. (sighs) So, and I'm also trying to, like, I'm also trying to say like, Hey, can, can we have accountability here? But I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry Mm. because there was this thing of like, well, you need to be forgiving. You need to walk in grace. You need to let it go. All of this stuff. Okay. Uh. So I was young and vulnerable. I was under this man's protection. I trusted him after not trusting anyone in my life. And he harmed me so, so deeply. Mm-hmm. So this is now a couple years later, I'm now married. This is like through all this, I'm now married and I'm not done yet with this. Like I'm yeah. part of it is that I'm an, I'm an Enneagram eight, if you can't hear that. Like, and I'm getting like, it, getting it. yeah, I'm like, this Just isn't it. okay. Just this isn't okay. Exactly. So I'm 24 now at this point. And I got a meeting with the head of the denomination, Joanne Lyon, and it is a woman. And I am like, okay, I am ready. Again, I'm trying to come at it into this as a woman of grace. And like, this is what happened and it's wrong. And where is accountability in this? Mm-hmm. But I'm not bitter and da, 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 da. And so I pour my heart out to, to Dr. Lyon and I felt heard. And she said she would follow up with Dwight. And she said, and I quote, I will do my due diligence. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holla, holla, holla. And then I never heard from her again. And I never, I didn't hear from Dwight. And I, it was this whole thing, but I, I just just like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm done with this. I, I I can't keep, I can't hold on to this anymore. Mm -hmm. And so my, my, now my, my husband who is a minister in the Wesleyan denomination, we moved to South Dakota, which is the tundra. Don't live there. If you do live in South Dakota, I'm sorry, but I hate your state. It's too cold (laughs) and dark. So we're there. And the pastor of the church that my husband is at is Dominic's church plant mentor. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for me immediately, I'm like, this isn't a safe place. And I'm trying, I'm trying to grapple with the fact that 
this man is is in a place that Dominic is still in the church and this harm was perpetuated against me. And I'm trying to figure all this out and trying to be this woman of grace, but also cry out for accountability. And like the type eight in me is like, no, 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 don't let it go. But then like all of the Christian messaging of what a woman is supposed to be like and grace filled and forgiving. Thank God is for like, eights, man. Thank God for I, eights. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like, I am like at war within myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like, I just want to be done. And I still would love to be done, but I know for me, I'm not going to be done until justice and accountability take place. Mm -hmm. So, and for me, that day would come when appropriate action has been taken towards Dominic and myself and necessary systematic changes happen within the denomination so that people are, the vulnerable are protected. And so protocols and regulations are set up. And so sexual violence and sexual predation is categorized as a, as a crime mm-hmm. instead of just a sin, because that word sin was weaponized against me. Well, he's sin and he's been, and he's repented and God has forgiven him and did it and you've forgiven him and all this stuff. And looking back, I'm like, I mean, sure. Yeah. What he did was a sin, but it was also a crime. And if Mm -hmm. the authorities had been called, this would have been dealt with very differently. Mm -hmm. And why is the justice of the world so much greater than justice of the the church? Like, shouldn't that be different? Church. The quote church. Yeah. But also when like for me, as I'm like in this deconstruction process and I think about justice, I'm like, well, no wonder that there are so much corruption within the churches and system of justice, because according to Christian theology, Jesus died for the sins of other people. Like that ain't justice. Mm -hmm. Like that's not just Mm -hmm. like, it's just if the person who commits the crime does the time, Mm -hmm. like that's a whole other side note. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I'm going to bleed, bleed, bleed. I have my little notes here. So the gospel was grossly used as an avenue against me and other victims when we are told that the God-pleasing thing to do is to extend grace and forgive and then continue and on forget our way. And pretend it didn't happen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the predator gets a slap on the wrist, if anything, and went through discipline within the Wesleyan denomination and then was sent to therapy which was paid for by the denomination. And also they continued getting their paycheck. Like, mm-mm, nope, nope, nope. So Everyone's supposed to live in up. harmony. It and just, and uh. I, yeah. And I'm also trying to like, I'm like, I am angry, but all these people see is just an angry, bitter woman. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I have righteous anger and you should be angry too, people. You should like, be angry too. Where, where is your angry? Like I was a young, vulnerable woman and I was preyed upon and mm-hmm. I was literally told it was my fault because I was too affectionate. Mm-hmm. And the predator was a man of the church. And again, it doesn't matter what his intentions were or were not. I mean, it does when it comes to like charging him, but the damage was done Yeah, to me. It was done to me and I'm going to continue to cry out. And I did, I have cried out for half of my life. Like, mm-hmm. like this happened when I was 16, I am 32. Like mm-hmm. I, and I have been trying to work through all the avenues and going the right way and trying to be God pleasing and people pleasing mm-hmm. and all the stuff. So, so at this point, like I'm in South Dakota, I'm newly married and I'm like, I'm just letting this go. And I try really hard to let it go. And there's a lot of depression. There are mm-hmm. a couple more hospitalizations for mental health. There's a whole bunch of stories there that I'm are not necessarily relevant to this, but 
just a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so, but this is constantly in the background of my head. So my husband and I, we moved to Kansas because he gets a job at a church here and we're here for a while. And again, this is all in the background of my head. Mm -hmm. And I joined the staff as a worship leader. And at this point, we're in the middle of this series called Growing Young, and the staff is reading this book, and it's this book about how to reach, yeah, how to reach young people. And then the very beginning, there's a story of a teenager whose mom, I think, was an addict, and there was this Christian couple who took her in, and it was this beautiful example of like the church showing up for a young person, and she, this girl came to know the Lord and her life was changed. It was so beautiful. But for me, I'm like, oh, I see red flags. So if we're going to be a church that does this, Mm -hmm. what are our, like, I sat down with what's in place to protect her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat down. So I met with, with my pastor, his name's Nate. And I was like, I have concerns about this. Like, if this is what we're going to do. And in order for me to really like show those concerns, I shared my story with him. And, and I was asking, what are our protocols? What, like, what safe Mm -hmm. measures do we have in place? So that way, if we say, yeah, take in someone who's young, like, how are we equipping people? Like, Mm -hmm. like, what are, what are the safety nets? Like what's going on? And so we, that began a good conversation there, but more than anything, Nate believed me Mm. and Nate heard me and Nate said, this is a problem. And he wanted to come alongside me in a way that wasn't robbing me of my autonomy or wasn't another man being my covering and protecting me, but wanted to help come alongside me to be heard. And so at that point, he said that he would talk with Dwight, who was the former district superintendent. Mm -hmm. And then he would talk to Billy Wilson, who is the current district superintendent. Mm -hmm. And my father-in-law is also a district superintendent over in up north, and he would be part of those meetings too. Where is Dominic now? At this point, he is at, he has his own church, the church plant that he has, okay, and is doing that. And at this point too, Joanne Lyon, who was, was no longer, and is no longer the head of the denomination, she was coming to our church to speak in January of like that, then the following year. And this was like September when I was talking to Nate. And so Nate was like, he threw out an idea of like, well, maybe we could sit down and talk with her, but he, but he was like, I want to give us a month for you to process and your process. So I know how I can step into this to help, which was mm-hmm. great. It was mm-hmm. beautiful for me to not be robbed of my autonomy and, no, and, say, and Hey, that. I'm going to handle this. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I met with Joanne and Nate and my husband was there and told her like, you failed me. You didn't follow up with me. You didn't mm-hmm. see this for what it is. This is a problem. At this point, I have also begun to look into the policies of the Wesleyan church and mm-hmm. regards to restoration and discipline and what all the rules and all this stuff. And the policy was so greatly lacking Mm -hmm. so so greatly lacking and there are what like the victim was not mentioned I think maybe once but it wasn't it was all about the person who did the wrong there was no mention of like and this is this is how we help our victims and this is what we provide for victims and Mm -hmm. like nothing at all and so 
I was pushing real hard for there to be systematic changes while also trying to cry out for accountability and in my place. And so I started looking at the restoration policy. And I also, because I got told like, well, where's grace in this? Uh, Where's grace in this? Where's grace in this? And I remember saying over and over and over and over, if a person violates another human being, they can be restored to God. They can be restored to community to some extent, but should that person be restored to a position of power? Fuck no, no, Fuck no, no, but your, your mind would be blown at how many people within leadership of the mm-hmm. Western denomination hem and hawed over that. Well, yeah. Like, well, where's grace? Where's grace? Mm-hmm. Where's grace? And I have to believe as I have witnessed this happen so often, it's because it's their buddies. And they're identifying with this person. And like, what if this happens to me? That's how they're thinking. They're not thinking uh, from the victim perspective. They're not centering the victim because this happens so much. They're so worried. And I'm like, there is no part of me that thinks an abuser Mm -hmm. should ever be in the pulpit again. They're gone. Mm -hmm. They're done. They can Mm -hmm. get a different fucking job. They are mm-hmm. done forever. No, well, and the thing problem. is, <laughs> the thing is, is like in the secular world, if a therapist crosses a line, they lose their done. license. They're, they're done. done. Doctor, like, same if, thing. Yeah, doctor, you're done. Nurse, mm-hmm. you're done. So why is it that then we enter into the scene with? clergyman that it's like well what about grace and forgiveness like what about how about if you again violate someone how about you're done mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. like the most gracious thing that can be done is that you lose your job and mm-hmm. are hopefully convicted to the fullest extent of the law like mm-hmm. how about that like mm-hmm. I don't even know okay well, actually mm-hmm. I do know it's wrong so during all of this every time I had met with a district superintendent or someone in leadership I don't even at this point was Dwight a couple times Nate, I, I did talk with my father-in-law before we like that my husband and I were married and he failed to grasp the situation, which again, you're not a trained mental professional. Mm-hmm. Like this is why it's important to have your policies written by people who are professionals, mm-hmm. not by lay people, like get over yourself, people mm-hmm. like like your, your credentials are in how to look at the scripture. And even that is something that you guys argue amongst yourself. So don't bring in that knowledge and think that you then have authority to look into someone one's life or look into a situation and think that you can parse through trauma and abuse and all this stuff. Because if I had told my story to someone who has mm-hmm. any level of education, then they would right away see that's a red flag. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. Look at the system. Look at what is going on. She is a person who has zero power and he has all the power. Mm-hmm. Consent doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I've talked with yeah, Dwight a few times, Joanne, who's the head of the nomination, my father-in-law, my like, I don't even, I'm 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 I think six times at this point. And every time I brought it to someone, I get told, I get asked the same question, well, what do you think should happen? And I remember and I and just thinking about that question just enrages me Mm -hmm. because I'm like it's pretty clear what should happen like do you not know like are you actually asking for my input because like you really don't know like Mm -hmm. if I 
look at a child on the floor bleeding out. I'm not going to sit there and think, what should I, what should I, what should happen? Or ask the bleeding child, what do you want me to do? Yeah. What should I do for you, honey? (laughs) Like, like, no, you act, you act on behalf of people or you help, you help, you help them. Another thing that was said over and over again to me throughout this was it's, it's a gray area because didn't outright rape you or penetrate you. It would have been, are you ready for this? It would have been easier if this was a rape case because that is black and white. Too bad like, he didn't rape you. Exactly. Oh exactly. Oh my yes. God. So all these people are failing to see that what this is, is a case of abuse. Just a textbook case, mm-hmm. textbook freaking case. Okay. In fact, for those of you, oh, and it took me a long, long time. It took me till like a year and a half ago to finally say, this is sexual abuse. And part of that goes, so I listened to the podcast, the episode with, was it Brian Peck, Brian Peck, Brian Peck, Brian mm-hmm. Peck, you're my guy. So you guys were in that podcast. He talked about how hard it is for a victim to own that they have been abused mm-hmm. because it's easier for me as a victim to think I had control. And mm-hmm. so, so no, I wasn't preyed on again. Like, Mm-hmm. I, I like I I I I can't take on that identity or no I, right. I wasn't prayed on right. I I somehow put myself in this position because then I'm not as vulnerable mm-hmm. and it and in the same way where I think Kim can sit there and think wow this girl is is trying to seduce my husband rather than her sit back and say wow this vulnerable girl has been preyed on by my husband right. I love absolutely and and I understand that and my heart breaks for Kim in a lot of ways but also wasn't my fault. Absolutely. So, so for those of you who need to know the definition of sexual abuse, it is the unwanted sexual activity with perpetrators using force, making threats, or taking advantage of victims not able to give consent. This is an email that I had sent. Like I sent this to people in leadership. Mm-hmm. Like this is what it is, guys. Sexual abuse and physical abuse are so harmful because it teaches the victim that their body is not their own and they have no say over what happens to their body. And this is probably very hard for people to understand Mm -hmm. who haven't been abused. And while Dominic didn't use force, he didn't restrain me. He did take advantage of me Mm -hmm. by using the emotional attachment and dependency I had on him. Mm -hmm. I had no one else in my life. Mm-hmm. Dominic was it mm-hmm. like Dominic and Tim like and and Kim like like sure people but the attachment I had was with Dominic and it was that way I think by his choice mm-hmm. my mom went away he isolated he, you he isolated me like he I totally isolated me mm-hmm. so I didn't have say over my my body because what would I in that situation if I say hey like I I have a journal entry actually where I had written Dominic like in my journals I would like write to people who I needed to process things with and so I wrote this thing in my journal to Dominic I obviously it was in my journal so I never gave it to him but I, remember, I wrote down if you're not gonna hug me the same way you do in front of Kim don't hug me at all Whoa. like yeah Whoa. and so. So even but you knew is, as a, yeah. something and you knew something. Yeah. Off. Well, something was off, but, and, and I think people on the outside can say, well, then why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? Because I, Dominic was the only attachment. He was my lifeboat. And if 
I were to call that out, I would be jumping out of my lifeboat and into what, but at the same time, he was also drowning me and holding me underwater. It's like mm-hmm. this complete system of corruption and abuse. And that is what abusers want. They want you to have to cling on to them while they drown you. And that is exactly what I did because I had no other options. Mm-hmm. I, and even in this thing that I've written to them, I'm like, I'm not spiteful. I'm not seeking vengeance. I want God's very best for them. Blah, 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 blah. You're so and concerned sure, about your own. I, I no. am. And they, they always paint victims as if they're like vindictive and they're coming after yes. and that they're, you know, and, and so rare yes. is that true. And in your case, it's, it's trembling, it's fear, it's, you know, desire for justice. And, and that's so often, cause it's so terrifying yes. to like trust people in power again, to do the right thing. Yes, absolutely. And so I'm going to read I'm going to read this little paragraph that I wrote in my email to headquarters. I said, in case you still feel that Dominic just stumbled or made a mistake, but went through quote unquote discipline for it. And that discipline was sufficient. Let me inform you of Texas penal code, chapter five, section 22.011 quote, a sexual assault is without the consent of the other person person if the actor is a clergyman who causes the other to submit or participate by exploiting the other person's emotional dependency on the clergyman in the clergyman's professional character as spiritual advisor. So it is quote. a crime in Texas, what he did. Yes, it Straight is a crime. crime. Okay, so all of this is happening. Okay, now things are about to get real crazy. Okay, let me just like readjust myself here. So, okay, so I had met with Joanne Lyon and then they then and she said, wow, I'm really sorry. I did totally fail you. And I, you know, we need it. We need to look at the restoration policy. We need to look at how we're helping victims, all this stuff. And she was like, if you want to have a voice in that, it sounds like you want to do more, like you have a voice in that. And I, and I said like, well, I'm not a professional. So like, mm-hmm. while I would love to give insight and tell my story, so people know that like, this actually has real life implications. Like, why, like, why don't we hire victims advocates? advocates. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's hire victims advocates. Let's hire mental health professionals. Let's hire attorneys who specialize in defending victims and of sexual mm-hmm. abuse or spiritual abuse. Like, like, let's bring in police. Like, let's look at the law. Like, like, I don't need to be placated or this like, mm-hmm. oh, you have so much to offer. Like, sure. I, yep. Yeah, I sure do. My story mm-hmm. is a really easy case study to look at and think, oh shit. Yep. We messed up mm-hmm. here. But why don't we bring in professionals? Just a, just a little bit of a idea there. I'm a little, I'm a little pissed off right now. And they didn't. They did. Well, this is now, I mean, like a couple of years ago before the pandemic. So 2019, 19. Okay. And they meet with Billy and Billy quote unquote investigates, which you can't investigate your own, your own institution. Like, that's not ethical. You need to bring in a third party for that, but we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a second. So Billy investigates and he calls me. And at this point I am like five months pregnant. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he calls me and he tells me, we had this long conversation. I'm going to pull up an email from here just so I have it because it's just really important to me. So I'm going to pause for a hot second and then I'll this is really helpful. try to so Joanne, meet with her. She's going to do 
we'll look into the whole thing, which no, not really. She didn't. And then Billy calls me after doing an investigation for a couple months. And on that phone call, he says that I technically wasn't, I, I technically um, was 17. And in Texas, that's the age of consent. What the so, which is another way of victim blaming because that insinuates that I consented. That insinuates that, that I consented. And that and that is not the case at all. Because again, the power dynamic. He's passing the buck is, to you. There, he's like, there's, oh, there's, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with exactly, it. You're exactly. Exactly. I don't want to be able to deal with it. it. Yeah. Even though mm-hmm. in the restoration policy at that point, it said if you sexually abuse a minor, then you're done. And I was like, so, so, so whatever you're going to make, whatever you want to work, because you're like, well, the age of a minor, but, but in Texas, it's not. So there's a loophole. Like why the fuck are you trying to find loopholes for this person? Exactly. Like, so you said, technically, it's not super um, disturbing to you. It was the age of consent. And he was talking about how the policy is like, you know, all this stuff. And I, and on the phone with him, I said, let's look at that penal code again. That's even if I was 27 years old, Mm -hmm. he exploited my dependency and that is against the law regardless. And there is no consent. Consent is, is given when you are equal power. When Mm -hmm. there is a power imbalance, consent does not exist. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like having this conversation with him and like tears streaming down my face, shaking and he also is like, you know, and again, the gray area is brought up again. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a gray area because like he didn't, you know, outright like abuse you. Like he was sexually inappropriate, sexually mm-hmm. inappropriate. It was a gray area. And, and he's, and he even said during this phone call, which again, your blood's about to like boil. He was like, you know, like it's, it's so hard because like, he didn't really essentially this isn't like a direct quote but essentially he was trying to communicate that like it's a gray area because he was just sexually inappropriate with me but it wasn't abuse and the same way that like child pornography is a gray area because like you know the child and and I was like whoa 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 what I and I was like child pornography is a federal offense and it is the exploitation of a child that is not a gray area there is no gray area here (laughs) yeah well that I mean that alone I was like my eyes were like I was like oh well no wonder the whole denominations policy is shitty because you have people in authority child porn that's what that's making me wonder well well so I like brought that up later so so that happened I shut down for a couple days after that I actually developed shingles from all of the stress, Yes, which sucks when you're five months pregnant and you have shingles on like your belly and rib cage. It was horrible. (sighs) Um, But that just speaks into the level of trauma. Like my body was taking on at that point and my nervous system just taking on at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I processed that. And then I wrote this email to Billy and I copied Nate, who what who was the our pastor at that point, and 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 he really did a great job of like stepping in with me. So I cc'd Nate and Joanne Lyon. Okay, and I so I said, hey Billy, I'm cc'ing. You know these people, so we're on the same page. And can I just read that? This is mm-hmm. that okay? After the after my emails back and forth, leaving ministry, Dominic 
finally, I just got a phone call last week where they're like, yeah, he, he left, you know, he resigned or whatever. Last week. Like last week I got a phone call. So at this point, I just got off the phone call with Billy. I'm processing all of that. And then I send this email. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. About the statue of limitation or not the statue of limitation about the clergy clause. Yes. The, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I had this meeting with Billy. He says all the bullshit about child pornography and gray area and all this stuff. So I write an email to Billy. I CC Dr. Lyon, Ben, my husband, and then Nate, who is our, my pastor at the time. And this is what I say. As you can imagine, it's been a rough weekend filled with lots of processing. I'm going to write very candidly. If I sound cold, please know I'm not. I'm just trying to keep myself from breaking down. I was not in a place to give consent. There are files of records from my therapist at the time with the issues I was walking through. Dominic exploited my emotional dependency on him to manipulate me. I had no adult family around me. After years of being violated as a child, I had learned that my body was not my own. I had no right to say no. And when I felt uncomfortable with Dominic, I told myself over and over, he would never hurt me. He loves me. He's my dad. If you talk to any professional who works with abuse victims, they will tell you this is a textbook case. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be completely honest here. I am so tired from fighting this. This is the eighth conversation I've had with someone in leadership within the Western denomination. If the restoration policy needed to be changed, why wasn't it changed when I spoke with Dwight seven and a half years ago or when I spoke with Joanne six years ago? I'm tired of falling through the cracks. I'm not going to let that happen again. I truly appreciate you all sympathizing for me and looking into this. However, I want to see real change within our denomination. Bottom line, had the police been called, Dominic would have faced criminal charges. Instead, he is standing behind a pulpit, scotch-free, and I have been the one imprisoned with shame and deep wounds. And all of this because we are part of a culture that allowed it to happen and part of an institution whose policies elevated the perpetrator and neglected the victim. Not only that, but it seems the line for banning from pastoralship and the Wesleyan church is drawn at sexual abuse. It should be drawn at sexual violation of any person of any age. This is a problem. Mm -hmm. My main questions are, what are the next steps? I understand that you've given lots of time to this, Billy, but I recognize it's not your job. So who's in charge of the policy? And I also called Billy out and I say, you mentioned child pornography, Billy. Am I right to assume that this means there's a pastor within the Wesleyan church who has sexually exploited a child and paid into the industry of human trafficking? Because that's also a huge problem. Or perhaps you were just asking to draw the line, which is so alarming. Thank you for reading this, Cody. So I'm not mincing words, and I am also handing them a platter with all of the resources of saying, look at this law. Have you considered this? Why are we not looking into this? And why am I the victim here doing the emotional labor? Like, right. why am I paying the price for this? And Ben, ben responded to that email, and he talks about consent, because Ben was like, well, the restoration policy says that it's sexual abuse of a minor, and Cody was legally a minor, so why are we mincing words about this? Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't align with the facts of the situation. Right. Um, so Billy responds, and he basically said, I will continue walking this with you. But he didn't deny anything that he said, so... 
Yeah, well, he said, like, well, like, there wasn't really a trial because I said, like, he couldn't be put through discipline again or whatever. Are you suing or did you sue? Baby girl, the statute of limitations is up. So there's nothing legally I can do. Like, I have met, I have talked to so many lawyers. I talked to the victim's advocate for Austin Police Department. I've talked to, like, I, there is nothing I can do. At which point we need to mention statute of limitation for sexual abuse should never exist. There should never be a statute of limitation in any There should yeah, there should never be a statute of limitation, period. Because the thing is, is it took me, uh, crap, 16 years for me to say I was sexually abused. Because it even just having to own that part of my story is so traumatizing. Because it means that someone that I trusted and I loved exploited my trust and my vulnerability and abused me. And that is a terrifying thing for a person to own about themselves. And a statute of limitation is not a victim centric approach. No, it's not. It's totally not. It's totally not a victim centric approach because it's all about, well, you know, the victim will have the, the perpetrator will have that hanging over their head for the rest of their life. Yeah, they fucking should. Like, yeah, exactly. if they're going to perpetuate harm and violate someone, that should be over their head for the rest of their life. And the gavel should be able to drop down as hard as it possibly can at whatever point the victim comes forward. Ben wrote about consent and said, a prerequisite of consent would have to involve two people in a romantic relationship who share equal power and have the mental capacity to make that decision for consent. That was clearly not the case with Dominic. He was in spiritual and emotional authority over Cody, creating an unhealthy power dynamic. There is no ambiguity here, and there would be no ambiguity in the legal systems. He would be arrested. We have consulted with professionals that have given us perspectives on both the psychological and legal side the more we dig into this the less ambiguous it will appear because all these people in leadership are like well it's kind of ambiguous 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 which is so alarming no very alarming it is not alarming why did dominic you said dominic resigned why did he resign okay it was basically the so they sent me the outline of dominic's restoration summary and it is just so shitty okay this is after he's been restored to being a pastor yeah 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 and the reason they sent it to me are you ready and this is the last sentence on this on this rest on the whole summary is the reason for this is that cody seems to be in the dark about what actions were taken to address this inappropriate behavior oh so patronizing yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And let me tell you, throughout this restoration summary, Dominic, there's no, like, it says, like, well, he confesses wrong behaviors. Not for me. And also, wrong behaviors. Let's talk about, how about, how about sexual abuse? How about a crime? How about that's what it is called? Not just confessing wrong behaviors. And the quote-unquote wrong behaviors that he confessed for this restoration summary was the pornography and all that crap. Not I wasn't... Yeah. yeah, not me, not me. He got bi-weekly counseling for a year, paid for by the denomination. He went on a week-long counseling retreat, paid for by the denomination. He went through this restoration manual with like different men in leadership and the district superintendent for, you know, the D- Texas and Louisiana district. 
he was given the green light in 2013 and started a church plant at that point. And since this restoration, there's been no incident or report. At the oh yeah, and this is thing, and this thing they say at the at the time of the inappropriate quote unquote kiss between Dominic and Cody, she was seventeen, and in Texas that's not a minor. Though highly oh. inappropriate, in, inexcusable, the Wesleyan Church's sexual misconduct with a minor policy does not necessarily apply to this incident. Oh my god! Bull fucking shit! So all this is happening, and I'm like, not for it i am not okay with this this is not excusable not okay and i just keep coming at them and i'm like nope 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 because it's the eight in me and because i have children now and i think ah. if if this was my child or, or any other person i will fight for them and i need to be able to fight for myself just as much as i would for any other human being right. so i want to do that i talked and ben was like i'm i'm done with like, even if dominic is fired I'm done with the what it should not. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done too. Like it should not have taken me doing all of this for half of my life for anything to happen. And so we started making movement towards stepping out of ministry. And during that time, I cannot tell you the amount of people who were like, well, you could do more good if you stick around. Oh. And, and Ben, Ben's response was she's done more than she should has have period and then i've had people say like just so much stuff like well god is using this because they're changing the policy and i want to scream no i did it yeah i'm the hero in the story yeah don't not god (laughs) yeah not god not other people who are saying well let's come alongside you i'm the hero in the story and i'm the one that has done all of this labor for this Mm -hmm. and and, and at this point, you are trying to fight abuse within a toxic, corrupt system. And when yeah. that is the case, it, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's a waste of time because your, your time is not wasted, but it's like, it's not going to go anywhere when the system itself is. Well, and I can't even begin to tell you because they're like, well, even if the policies change, like the culture might not, like, how should we change the culture? And I'm like, and I'm like why are you asking me? I'm the victim. Like, why? Like, like, that's a great question. So do your fucking research. Like, yeah. and so all of these people are culpable. The entire culture is culpable. Every person in leadership who has heard my story is culpable. Mm-hmm. And and I want to ask, like, I just want to like scream, like, look at me, mm-hmm. look what you've done. Look at me. Mm-hmm. So, so all this is happening. We leave ministry in February or March of this year. So 2021. And it's been so freeing, Catherine. Oh my gosh. Like to be able to step out of that, I feel so free and I have been able to deconstruct not just theology, but also more purity culture and really step into my own body in a way that I have never been able to. Mm -hmm. And it's been so freeing. I actually, a month ago, I started um, this um, anonymous Instagram account where I'm deconstructing purity culture and it's been amazing. And this summer... Through the grapevine, I heard that Dominic was going to step down. Through the gra- I, no one actually called me to tell me about it. I heard through the grapevine. And so I started like, like 
insanely like checking the website to like for the, the church that he was at to see when his picture would go down and checking the sermons to see like, is there any mention of this or anything? And so I had been doing that for a couple of weeks and then one Monday his picture was gone and I went to look and look into the sermon to see like how they, how they did it. Like, did they paint him as this victim? Like how they do it. And they have audio recordings of every single Sunday except that Sunday. Oh yeah, they don't. <laughs> and and that made my blood boil because yep. he got to present the story in whatever way he wanted to. And the culture Yes, the culture that upheld him and left me in the dust got to uphold whatever he said and he got to paint it whatever. So me contacting you is me saying, I will be heard. I will not be silenced. Absolutely. I will tell my story. And I can hear people already being like, like coming at me or being like, well, why would you want to do something like that? Why would you want to tear down this denomination? The scream is what a shame that this took place within your denomination. That is more of a shame that yeah. someone was harmed and not believed and that the predator was aided. That is more of a shame. So like, so good thing the policy is changing. The, those they're going to work on actually putting money towards victims, which is great. And again, the hero in the story is not God. The hero in the story is not the denomination. The hero in the story is me. Yeah. And I want freaking all the people in Western leadership to hear that. The yeah. hero in the story is me. And one person said that, because I said, like, you know, it shouldn't have taken Nate coming and aligning himself with me. And this person said, well, Nate was just your megaphone. And I said, and I said, why do I need a man to be my megaphone? Is my voice not enough? Exactly. Why did they believe him and not me? Yeah. Is my voice not enough? Is what? And so this is something that I have fought for half of my life. So this yeah. spring, so Ben and I stepped down and this spring, I got a phone call from Billy who said that they are hiring a third party person to conduct an investigation, which I was like, oh, about freaking time. Like, right. but for me, it just felt like, oh, here's another step for you to do, Cody. Here's another way for you to have to emotionally labor right. and put more effort into this and more energy into this. But I was like, and I really thought about like not doing it. And, and Billy was like, Cody, if you were my daughter, I would, you know, I would want you to do this. And I said, Billy, I said, Billy, if I was your daughter, you would see this for what it is. Yeah. And you would act swiftly. Mm -hmm. So, so they hired an attorney who does these types of investigations. And so she came here and I told my story and then she went to Texas and she interviewed other people and other victims, other victims. Other victims. Because oh, you know, dominant. yes, because you know, I'm not the only one because historically, like that's not how things go. And so with all of her findings, then they were able to say that there is a, you know, reasonable possibility that all of this happened. Therefore, he, he can resign or he should resign or whatever. They, so they presented all this to him and these like the charges within the Wesleyan system brought up against him. And at that point is when he decided to resign. And that's an important indication because I was like, so within the Wesleyan policy, if someone resigns and hands in their credentials, they can later get them back. So I was like, so Billy, 
Well, what's going to keep him from getting his credentials back? And Billy said, well, because he resigned under investigation, he can't get them back. And so then I said, well, what's going to happen if he decides to jump ship and goes to another denomination? That's, that's or, what they do. That is what they do. Yeah. He said, well, I wouldn't give him a recommendation. But I know there are people within this corrupt system who would. That's so right. that is the second motivating factor is that, Dominic, you violated me when I was the most vulnerable and you should forfeit your right to be an authority over any person and my voice will be heard and my story will be heard and I will do my due diligence mm -hmm. to see that you will not harm another individual. And that is me doing this. Mm -hmm. I am a eight, come at me and I, I'll fight back. Like I'm not just gonna sit back and let harm be continued. At what all. would you say to other victims who have found themselves in situ situations like this, and there are a plethora of people in these church situations where there is abuse and, and no one's listening and no one's responding, what would you say to them? First of all, I would say that I am so sorry for what has happened to you and that it was not your fault. And... Uh, that that is a message that you are going to have to internalize and work so hard to just it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault i would say that you are not alone and that speak your voice deserves to be heard mm -hmm. and find people who will come alongside you and the people who come alongside me the best have not been in the church Mm. because the church is this corrupt system that wants to protect itself and they are okay with you paying the price for these wrongdoings but your voice deserves to be heard and you matter and it wasn't your fault and find a therapist do the work find a therapist and work through this and just find find people that will hear you and keep telling your story yeah i don't i don't know I, yeah and they deserve to be centered a victim. Oh, absolutely. You deserve, yeah. People who've been the victims deserve to be centered. They deserve to be helped. They deserve to be heard. And they deserve all the beautiful things in life. And the person who was perpetuating the harm deserves to be held accountable. Absolutely. Well, I'm so very honored that you would tell your story on uncertain podcasts. I'm, I know it takes a lot to, to share on these things. And so if there's any, anything that comes up after this of like, oh, we're sharing, or I shouldn't have shut, said that or whatever, like know that like every portion of your story is just, is so powerful. I'm so honored to have gotten to hear it. I'm very honored to be able to share it. And I know that this is going to just mean so much to people and just be, I hope also motivating for institutions that hear this and some of these institutions do have good people in them as corrupt as the institutions tend to be to have good people hear these stories and say this it's enough like we're not we're not doing this anymore. yeah and and I do want to say that of the like the, the people who were in leadership and are still in leadership are good people 
And I want to make that distinction because good people can do terrible, harmful things. Very, yes, and, very appropriate. Yeah, and it was the culture and it was the system and it was it's so much greater than just one person perpetuating harm. It's an entire system perpetuating harm. Yeah. And each of those people, yep, they're great people and I care for them and I love them and all of this, but they still harmed me and they still need to be held accountable and a great great distinction to make too yeah and it's like easy to go into all black and white thinking and think oh my gosh all this but like all these people are so evil and they're the worst they're not but the system is set up in order for predators to thrive and victims to die just wither away and if i did not keep crying out i would have been forgotten i was forgotten even as i was crying out right and so, the institutions and the perpetrators that are in these institutions, they are the ones that continue to perpetuate these systems. And so the church needs to be aware that they are here in, in, in our midst. Yes. <laughs> like, like, don't think, oh, it couldn't happen here. That's yes. the exact same thinking that's going to make it happen. Exactly. Like there's no, there's no organization that is, that is safe. Like there's no, like it can happen anywhere and it does. And it happens with people that you trust and that you love and, oh yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you again, Cody, so much. I will let you know just like when this is coming out. I appreciate <laughs> it. I will chat with you soon and I hope you have, I hope you've had some restful, restful, fun things to do. Today. Yeah. I'm going to go eat pancakes. I think I need to go eat something. What do I want to eat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> pancakes yes. sound amazing. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening and giving this one survivor an opportunity to share their story. It's really important to listen to survivors' stories, not only because we learn so much about the dynamics of abuse and the recovery from abuse and the damage that it causes, but part of the recovery process is just getting an opportunity to share your story with people who will validate that story and listen to it. So you're a part of the recovery process for survivors by listening, by sharing, by believing. So thank you so much for being here. In the event that this episode was triggering for you, I just encourage you to take a few minutes to focus on your feet on the floor and your seat in the chair if you're sitting and just sit for a few minutes, maybe take a few deep breaths that you take all the way down into your stomach and maybe hold your breath for a few seconds before you exhale. Do that a few times. If you have the time and you have the space to do it, I encourage you to just maybe go for a walk around the block, but be mindful in that walk. Take your steps deliberately and pay attention to your steps as they're just hitting the floor. Pay attention to what's around you. Notice what you can see. Notice what you can hear. Notice what you can smell. These are just ways that you can just reorient yourself, maybe deactivate yourself if you have been triggered by this episode. Again, really important that we give survivors the space to share their stories. So thank you so much for being here and best of luck for the rest of your day. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.